Amen. Thank you, guys. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, 9 a.m. Good morning, good morning, good morning. My name is Ernie Wagner. I'm the lead pastor here at Sojourn. If it happens to be your first time with us, welcome. We got a gift for you. Hopefully, you received uh, that. Um, Got a few uh, things I want to mention off the top before we get into our Lenten uh, series, which starts today. Um, The first thing to make mention of is just a a reminder of our mask kind of standard right now. We don't mention this every week uh, because, frankly, we're just tired of hearing about it. Let's just be honest. But um, So just a reminder, as you come in, wear a mask. As you sing, wear a mask during the sermon. You can take your mask off if you feel comfortable in that. And then uh, on the back end, when we sing again, throw that sucker back on until you head out the double doors. And then you can throw that sucker away if you want until next week. And then you got to go find it. And then you, you do the whole thing again. And so that's the first thing. The second thing is we are uh, walking through New City Catechism. Uh, every Sunday, we are the 22nd question uh, which is uh, going to be on the screens uh, momentarily. Um, there, there it is. Got a little nervous that it wasn't going to pop up there because I don't have it on my notes, so didn't know what to do, um, but we're good. Um, and so the New City Catechism is designed to help our families, help our community remember our faith and what we stand on as we follow Jesus. And so each week we have a question, and each week we have an answer. And this isn't just to fill some space because we don't know what to do in this time. It's really practical for our families to remember this and then use this as you go home. Some community groups are using this, but allow this to be an opportunity to dialogue with your kids about these things. And so I'm going to read the question, and we've kind of been building a narrative over the last several weeks. And so I'm going to read the question, and then we can answer it together. Question, why must the Redeemer be truly human? Answer, that in human nature, he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin. So the last question last week was, uh, the Redeemer is fully human and, and fully God. And so again, let's uh, ask it and, and answer it one more time. Question, why must the Redeemer be truly human? Answer, that in human nature, he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin. Amen. I want to invite Cherry to come up, and she's going to invite some of you ladies to do something uh, coming up this Saturday. Good morning, sisters and brothers. My name is Cherry. Um, you saw me about a month ago. I made an announcement about the women's events that we were having this year, and our very next one is this coming Saturday, and it's going to be in the morning from 9.30 to 11.30. Um, most likely we'll be meeting downstairs. If the sign-up gets to be too large, we're going to move them here so that you can separate more. You are, of course, going to be wearing your mask as you enter. Once you're seated, we're going to be having some tea, some snacks, so you'll be free to take it off during that. Wear it back again if you feel comfortable after you finish your tea. But if you have not signed up, please do so by Friday. You got the link in your weekly email, or you can just see me after services, and I will text you the link to get you signed up. So please come this Saturday. You're going to hear some messages from some of our sisters here in church, and it's going to be a great morning. So please come. Thank you. Love it. Thank you, Cherry. Appreciate you. Yeah, please more than one clap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love it. I know it's early. You guys are tired today. Hopefully some of y'all start talking to me in a little bit. We're in a Lenten season, and so this is a time in the liturgical calendar where we remind ourselves of our mortality. And so on Wednesday, some of you were here, and we got ashes on our forehead, and we remember that you are dust, 
and to dust you shall return. And so it's a reminder of our mortality, but it's also a reminder of our limitations. As humans, we have limitations. And so we've talked about over the last several years about how uh, we need space to rest. We need space for Sabbath and to be human. And so those are things that we value as a community. And so Lynn reminds us of that. And so we just so happen to find ourselves uh, in this season while we're seeking to finish out our uh, journey through Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. And so we're going to finish out Matthew 26 through 28 as we build towards Easter over these next several weeks. And this is what I'm hoping for. I'm hoping that we can slow ourselves down a bit and behold the wondrous cross. My desire over these next several weeks is that we would slow down and, and find our hearts beholding in a way that maybe we haven't. And there's something that took place 2,000 years ago on the outskirts of Jerusalem that changed the course of human history. And I want to behold that with you, and I want that to stir our affections towards Jesus uh, during this Lenten season. So we're in Matthew 26. We have exited the, it's been a minute, I know. You guys surely remember where we were last um, in Matthew 25, um, surely. And so, uh, so we finished out the last teaching of Matthew, this, uh, of Jesus, the fifth discourse. And it was the Olivet Discourse. We talked about the second coming. Uh, we, we talked about that as we built into, uh, into Advent. And so we've now exited that last teaching, and we're now just days before the Passion Narrative. And so we're going to be building up, and there's going to be some strategic things that Matthew is kind of interweaving together to build the story, to communicate the passion narrative that takes place. What we find in Matthew 26 in particular is a, a juxtaposed uh, uh, characteristics that, that we see. Uh, we see the difference between greed and generosity. And both of those are going to, are going to take place in, in this text. We're going to see two different people with two very different heart postures. And so Matthew 26, starting in verse 1, we're going to read it, and y'all are jazzed about it. Matthew 26, verse 1, it says, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, again, the, the teachings, the fifth discourse, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. We'll pause there for a second. So the clock is ticking. Okay, we're, we're days away from the arrest, the betrayal, the trial, the, the flogging, the crucifixion, and then the resurrection. And so there's, uh, the Passover is about to take place, and, and we as Gentiles, most of us, we don't know much about Passover at all. And so we're going to get into that a lot more next week because that's where the text leads us. Um, but what we do know is that Passover is a festival of God's redemption towards his people. And it, it begins, it culminates, takes place in the, uh, the story in Exodus where uh, the 10th plague occurs. All the firstborn boys are going to be killed and yet there's a way of escape through this blood of a lamb over the doorpost where uh, the angel of death would pass over those homes. That's why it's called Passover. Maybe new for you, that's free. And so this Passover is taking place towards God's people, his redemptive people. And Jesus is going to die on Passover. Again, the, the parallels are uncanny as we get into it a bit more. And so that's, again, not for this week. But he lays out yet again the game plan that's going to take place. It's shocking. Jesus is calling all of his shots. 
And again, we can't overlook the fact that he's consistently reminding us of what is going to happen as if he knows what's going to happen. So again, let's, let's remember this. I don't want you to trust me. I want you to trust the good book here. And so in Matthew 16, there are three times in the gospel of Matthew where Jesus promises how he's going to die. And again, we know the end of the story. We know hindsight. We have a pretty good idea of where this thing's going. And so just reflect on that as we see days, weeks, months ahead of time, Jesus calling his shots. And so in Matthew 16, verse 21, he says this, and we can just so easily pass over it. Um, it says in, in Matthew 16, 21, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Like we read through that as if that's just normal. That someone can predict how they're going to die, and then they're going to rise up three days later. But he just says it. And then again, we fast forward the second time. Again, three times this occurs. In Matthew 17, verse 22, it says, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Again, just dropping it like it's just normal. And then again in Matthew 20. Verse 17 through 19, it says, And as Jesus was going to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, kind of has this huddle, and on, on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. He ups the ante. He doesn't just say he's going to die, but he says that he's going to be flogged and then he's going to be crucified. And on the third day, he's going to rise again. This is shocking that he calls his death. And yet this is what's happening as we look at the text here. As we get into this text, this passion narrative, we see that Jesus isn't just passive. He's not weak. He's not limp. He's, he is in control of the whole thing that's happening here. This isn't by chance. This isn't a, a moment where we're kind of like, oh, poor Jesus. No, it's not like that at all. He is an unstoppable lamb that's had a mission that's been unstoppable from the, the time that he came onto the scene. And in this moment, we see this as well. In his providence, he is the one who has come to take away the sins of the world. And so he says in 26, uh, verse 2, that you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Again, that same language that Wesley talked about last week, the Son of Man and, and Daniel 7, who would take the, the reins of the kingdom forever, this Son of Man, he uses the same language, will be crucified to take that kingdom. And the story continues. Verse 3, then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And so we got the chief priests, we got the elders, and then there's also the scribes that aren't here in this moment. But they had no idea who they were up against. And so they had this ad hoc meeting, and they kind of worked to kind of figure out, what can we do to get rid of this guy? He's making claims that are ridiculous, and he's saying things that are causing people to wonder if there's a better kingdom out there than the kingdom of Rome. And so this group, these elders and these chief priests are like the political group of the day. So they have a sidebar, and they begin to discuss, what do we need to do? How can we with stealth 
kill this man. And then we meet this guy Caiaphas, which is a key figure in the story. As you dive a little more deeply, and we will these upcoming weeks, uh, regarding the story, the passion narrative of Jesus, we find that he's a pretty important character. He is the high priest of that day. Caiaphas will come face to face with Jesus in a trial and just a few verses later. And he's the first person that Jesus meets when he's arrested. So the high priest was once an office that stemmed from Aaron. Aaron was the, uh, related to Moses way back in the day. And so Aaron was the high priest. But as generations went along, it kind of moved away from the initial role of what it was designed to be and more into just someone who's more political who represents the nation. And so Caiaphas, he ruled for about 18 years from uh, AD 18 to AD 36. And so again, they have no clue who this man is and what they're about to experience. And so from there, we meet two characters with two very different characteristics, one who's very greedy and one who is very generous. We're going to meet the generous one first. In verse 6, it says, Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head. As he reclined at table, and when the disciples saw it, they were indignant and saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. We meet this woman. I want to, uh, so we meet this woman and we, we find in every gospel account. So that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There is a story within a gospel account that has a woman pouring out very exp expensive ointment or perfume onto Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and John all have that story right before Jesus' crucifixion. And then Luke has it in the middle of his ministry. And so what I would venture to say that there's two, at least two times where there was someone who poured very expensive ointment on Jesus. And so Matthew and Mark and John have a very similar story. It's all, all days before the crucifixion. It's all in this place called Bethany. And John tells us the name of the woman in which Matthew doesn't. And her name is Mary. And so what we find, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call her Mary going forward. We don't know with certainty that it's Mary, but all signs would point to that. And what I want to attempt to uh, explain to you guys is that Mary's uncalculated generosity is opposed to the sordid greed of Judas. And that's what we're seeing in this text. And so uh, Charles Spurgeon says, don't think that two stories of, uh, of two people pouring expensive ointment on Jesus is radical. It should have been that there were a thousand people who did that. And I love that presentation. Um, but there's a description. Uh, yeah, I already mentioned that. So the story tells us that this woman came to Jesus and she poured this very expensive, likely a year's wage uh, of ointment on Jesus, this perfume. And it didn't take long for this whole house to smell like this ointment. Um, my wife and I have three boys, 
Uh, our youngest is Rowan, and he is a hot mess right now. He finds Sharpies in our house, and we don't know where they are. We're actually like, it's kind of overwhelming because he keeps finding Sharpies and, and drawing on things on our couch and on furniture. It's not funny. It's not funny. And we keep getting rid of the Sharpies, and he has a stash, and we can't find them. I'm not kidding. It's pretty... Uh, ridiculous. But bless his heart, he sometimes finds this bottle, at least he used to until we got rid of it, of uh, vinegar and water. And all of a sudden, like typically when five minutes goes by and Rowan's quiet, we're like, where's Rowan? Where's Rowan? And so we go on a search and sometimes call 911. And so, um, so there was a couple of times where we didn't know where he was. Again, just I'm talking minutes, not hours, like we're good parents, just minutes. And all of a sudden, I start smelling this, this smell of vinegar. I'm like, oh, he's, he's back into the bottle with water and vinegar. And so that's, that's the, a very diluted concoction. Imagine this very expensive bottle of perfume, broken, and then poured upon Jesus. This, this house is, is filled with this fragrance. And all of a sudden, the disciples begin to smell it. They begin to realize what's happening. They begin to, what is happening? Why this waste? You know, in Matthew 19, just a, a few chapters before, they heard Jesus tell this rich young ruler that he needed to sell everything and give it to the poor. So they knew that Jesus cared deeply for the poor. And so they're logically thinking, why is she doing this? We could have sold this. And we could have done the thing that Jesus has been talking about, caring for the poor. And yet Jesus is engaging something quite important. He, he says, on the contrary, that she has done something beautiful. Another translation would be something lovely, something noble. So the disciples were indignant, but Jesus said that she did this, and it was lovely. This generosity was lovely. See, he wasn't minimizing our need to care for the poor. There's no point in even identifying that in this text. And James 2, who's actually, James is the brother of Jesus. He writes in this little letter uh, called James, and in it, uh, two verses are, are said in, in uh, James 2, 15 to 16. Uh, it says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So the early church understood Jesus cared for the poor. They were actually extravagant. They were known, we talked about this several weeks ago, they were known as a community who cared deeply for those in need and those who were poor. Yet, what had happened was beautiful. Out of a loving, generous heart, she took this prized possession. And this is her future. This is her like wealth that she could build her life upon. And she took it. And she broke it, and she seemingly wasted it upon Jesus. Out of a loving, generous heart, she wasted this possession upon Jesus. See, there's nothing that was too much, nothing that was too good, nothing that was uh, not worth giving up that she wouldn't sacrifice for Jesus. And out of this heart, she breaks it and freely, generously pours it upon Jesus' feet. Spurgeon goes on to say, Charles Spurgeon, he says, may she have many imitators in every age until Jesus comes again. This heart posture of generosity for Jesus. So we may not be able to do exactly what Jesus, or exactly what this woman did, we can't. But with a heart of love, we can pour our affection and adoration 
and lives before our king with our money, with our time, with our resources, with our lives. This is the message of Jesus. See, as we come into his family, our journey is to to more deeply trust him. And as we more deeply trust him, we're more freely able to give generously for him. Jesus then makes this claim in the text in verse 13. And uh, Eugene Peterson summarizes it like this. He says, you can be sure that wherever in the whole world the message is preached, what she has just done is going to be remembered and admired. For one, this is not something that we hear about, which is kind of ironic. It's like Jesus told us pretty explicitly to talk about this when we talk about the gospel, and we don't really talk about this ever. Maybe it's out of shame or something. I don't know. Maybe it's forgetfulness. But Jesus is laying out an expectation of his disciples. See, this, this message isn't designed to just make us smarter. This message isn't just designed to make us have a little more knowledge. This message of the cross that we want to behold in this Lenten season is designed to stir adoration and affection in our hearts for Jesus. When we hear, oh, what a Savior. What, how does it go, Trevor? Oh, what a Savior. Isn't he? No, you got, don't, don't, don't thumbs up me. You got to help me out here. Isn't he wonderful? <laughs> oh, what a Savior. Isn't he wonderful? Like that stirs us to, to consider what he's done. It's not just words. Get through this song to get to the meat and the scripture. No, it's a, it's a moment where we can be like Mary and we can pour our hearts and our affections before him. This message was not designed to make us smarter. It was designed to stir our affections for him. In the intro of the cross, of this passion narrative, we see the story of this woman who does this radical thing, this generous thing to Jesus. Generous adoration for the sake of Jesus became a a normal message that Jesus wanted to be communicated when the gospel was presented. Don't let this just be mere knowledge and information that you check off. Let this stir your affections and your desires for him. See, our king, he unrobed himself in all of his glory. He enrobed himself and he entered into our story to rescue and ransom us through living a life we couldn't live and dying the death that we deserved and ultimately rising again to ransom us. There's a mention in this text uh, of a burial spice, and this is important. In this day, it was important for burial spices to be used for the stench of the body, but also to honor the body. And there was common knowledge if what Jesus was saying was true, that these executors were not going to uh, honor Jesus' body. And so she does so as an act of honoring him. My, my mother-in-law, my wife's mom, uh, loves essential oils. And she loves to wear essential oils. It's just she smells like essential oils. And so, which is fine. Um, she can do whatever she wants to do. But whenever we get our boys back from hugging uh, Dee Dee, um, they smell like essential oils. They smell like Dorian for the next day. And there's just a couple drops that now are on them for the next while. And, and I imagine with the amount of oil that was poured on Jesus, I mean, significant. Dorian's got a couple drops. This is a year's wage. Dorian's my mother in law. Um, like, where's Dorian in here? I can't find her anywhere. <clears throat> um, a couple drops on Dorian. There, there are, there's a, a, a huge thing that was poured out upon Jesus. And I imagine, again, mere days before the cross, I imagine that he 
smelt whiffs of that ointment when he was slapped in the face. I imagine that he smelt it when he was flogged. I imagine that he smelt it while he was hung, beaten to a pulp with the wrath of God placed on him. I imagine those wafts coming from his hair and from his body. See, her act was so beautifully expressed in this generosity. And we see this as kind of the the first act leading into the passion narrative. And then we meet the other character in verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver, And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So Judas was one of the 12, and Jesus was well aware that he was a thief. And so in John 12, 6, this might be new information to you, you got to imagine, you got to kind of wonder Jesus' leadership style, and that he would allow his CFO to his ministry to be a thief. John 12, 6 says, uh, and this is the same story that we were just reading. It's a, it's a similar uh, story that John's laying out. And he said this, not because he cared about the poor. So Judas is the one in John's narrative that says, why this waste? We could have given this to the poor. And in verse 6, he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So he didn't care about the poor. He wanted the money in the bag so he could now use that money for his own gain. We have generosity and we have greed. There's this paradox between Judas and Mary, between greed and generosity. See, someone who has influence in the church does not mean they are right with God. Judas had influence in the early church, in the 12. Just because someone has influence in the church doesn't mean that they are right with God. I, I bring up something that's painful to bring up, and maybe it's new information to you, but I think about the horrific wake of Robbie Zacharias, an influential apologist who was admired by the masses, by the global church. And when he passed back in May, there was not a person that didn't, well, there were, but the major voices were people who honored his legacy and his life. Christianity Today summarizes it like this. After his death, a four-month investigation found the late Robbie Zacharias leveraged his reputation as a world-famous Christian apologist to abuse massage therapists in the United States and abroad. Over more than a decade, while the ministry led by his family members and loyal allies failed to hold him accountable. See, someone who has influence in the church does not mean that they're right with God. I don't say this with pride. Even this morning, I found out about a, another Christian leader who had a moral failure. And the reality is we all have a little bit of Judas in us. We all have the temptation and the tendency. It's easy to look at Judas and be like, what a, what a jerk. I would never do that. Like Peter said, I would never do that. And then he is tempt, he's then rejecting Jesus just hours later. We can look at the lust of Robbie or the greed of Judas and shake our heads But Paul's challenge to us is to see the faults of others as a mirror for ourselves. In Galatians 6, 1, it says this, Brothers, 
Sisters, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And this is what I want to focus on. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. See, every time, I want to say every time, I hear about these scandals, these situations that take place. Two things come to mind for me, and I've talked to Zach, our executive pastor at length, about this. The first is that there are countless men and women. For every one person we hear about in the public eye, on the platform, there are countless men and women who are faithful shepherds without platforms, staying the course in obscurity. I remember that. This is not the norm. But secondly, I pray God search me and know me and see if there's any grievous way in me. I pray that when we look at someone like Ravi, we look at someone like Judas, that our response isn't pride. But God, would you search me? Let me not be one that goes down that path. Would you let my life honor you? See, Judas, in his greed, he handed over, he betrayed Jesus. For 30 pieces of silver, he sold the information of Jesus and became his traitor. Silver coins in that day were, were likely a denarii, and 30 of them made up about a month's wage, so a handful of thousands of dollars that he sold the Son of God over for betrayal. See, greed is a deadly sin. It's a longing, an uncontrolled longing for more, more status, more gain, fill in the blank. And yet the greatest power to overcome our vices, whether it's greed or whatever else it might be, lust, fill in the blank, the greatest power to overcome our vices is to humbly kneel before the cross and behold. There's nothing that will liberate your heart more from sin than beholding. So in Lent, we remember our mortality. But in Lent, we remember the power of Jesus and his cross, and we want to behold that together. In this Lenten season, I want us to behold, I want our hearts to be softened and to turn yet again to the, beholding the wondrous cross, to free my grip of this world as, as we see the depth by which he came to pursue us. And so we end and we see again these two very different characters, Mary, Judas, generosity, greed, and we allow that latter one to become a mirror for us, and we allow that former one to motivate us, that it's in her responding to his love for her, that she loved. We love because he first loved. We behold, and in beholding, we behold love. When we behold the cross, we behold love, and when we behold love, our hearts are changed, changed to be generous. And I pray over these next several weeks as we move towards Easter, that in our beholding, our hearts would be softened to be generous together. Amen? Let's pray.